Welcome to the Continued Learning Podcast. My name is Dr. Fawn Carson, and I'm Senior Managing Editor at OccupationalTherapy.com. Today's podcast features our host, Dr. Dennis Cleary, discussing reframing autism from a neurodiversity-affirming perspective with our guest, Katherine McGinley. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Dennis Cleary. I'm a senior researcher and occupational therapist at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, and I'm really happy to be joined today by Katherine McGinley, uh, who is an occupational therapy doctoral student, going to be an occupational therapist here very, very shortly, maybe by the time you're listening to this. Uh, So Katherine, thanks so much for joining us. Hope you're having a great day today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So um, you, as we've talked, so just kind of the, the background for how we met and why we're having this discussion. Um, we had a, an earlier podcast where we really talked about how important it was um, for us as occupational therapists to really um, listen to um, uh, the neurodiverse community. And uh, I think that evening um, I was on an AOTA um call and lo and behold uh you were on the on the call as well so um could you just talk a little bit about um you're a big supporter of neurodiversity and neurodiversity uh, affirming practices so could you just tell us a little background about uh what is neurodiversity and um, what those practices are that are neurodiversity affirming Yeah, absolutely. So neurodiversity um, is a term that was kind of coined in the 1990s uh, by Judy Singer. Um, It's a play off of the term biodiversity, referring to the normal variation that occurs in human brains. This concept includes people with anxiety, ADHD, autism, and many others. (laughs) Really, this concept just suggests that there is no such thing as a normal or abnormal brain, and we should embrace the differences. So then when looking at what that means for practice, um, practice really, like neurodiversity affirming practice, really flips the traditional model of care. Instead, it recognizes all individuals as valuable just the way they are. Treatment or intervention then looks more like affirming who you already are and increasing quality of life rather than attempting to change people into fitting into a normal or typical mold. Um, This type of practice is most commonly talked about and used for autistic people, and that's great, Um, but neurodiversity affirming practices and approaches recognize all brains is valid. So neurodiversity affirming care is appropriate for everyone. Great. So can you tell me a little bit about um, how you got into autism practice and why why neurodiversity uh, affirming practices are so important to you? So I am an autistic adult. Um, I have autistic family members and friends. Uh, And although autistic people can go into any field, many of us want to work with uh, other autistic people. Currently, I'm doing my capstone project on assisting practitioners in understanding how to use neurodiversity-affirming practices with autistic people who exhibit self-harm or aggressive behaviors. Gotcha. And so uh, tell us just a little bit about where you are in school and um, what your kind of, uh, a little bit about your capstone, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, so um, I am doing my doctorate degree at Huntington University, obviously in occupational therapy. Um, I'm in my final semester completing my capstone, Um, and like I mentioned, I'm doing 
I'm helping um, practitioners understand how to use neurodiversity affirming practice. So I'm lucky enough to actually partner with Dr. Kramer, who I believe you know, um, to do qualitative research. Jessica Kramer from the University That's of Florida. That's her, yes. <laughs> um, so that has been absolutely great. And we're working on doing some qualitative research. Wonderful. And um, so that was how we, we met as we were on a I don't know if I was on the panel or if I was just, I, even if I'm not on a panel, I tend to talk a lot. So, but I just. I think actually I was on the panel. You, you so. absolutely were on the panel. I couldn't remember if I was on it with you or not, but I, you were just such, uh, um, you know, uh, had just, I think, such a unique voice that I think is important for for all of us to hear. So again, just really appreciate you being here. And, and will this count for any of your uh, your capstone hours or anything like that? Oh, or definitely. Is... Oh, good. I, all right. Well, good. We're I definitely happy. plan to count it. <laughs> happy that those those uh, 560 hours we can count as part of the hour we're spending together. So that's, that's great. Um, so I did notice that you say autistic person rather than person with autism. So we've kind of had um, person first language drilled into us, but um, is there uh, a reason that you move away from uh, person first language? Yeah, I'm a big believer in the idea of nothing about us without us. Uh, many of us have heard of this like disability mantra. Um, it's been used uh, probably for centuries now at this point, um, but it really applies to the autistic community and disability community as a whole, um, especially when it comes to things like language and then considering what practices we should use. Um, really, we should be consulting the communities that we serve. And in general, the autistic community prefers identity first language. And so that's um, what I personally use. I do want to give a general caveat, though, that individuals um, may prefer different types of language and you should always respect what an individual prefers. Yeah, it was it was sort of interesting. I was at a conference uh, last summer and there was someone was using people first language and then a uh, um, an, an autistic individual in the, in the audience said, you know, I prefer, and, and so it was just sort of this conversation around, around language and that, you know, it was kind of like, well, that was your preference, but it isn't necessarily what everybody's preference was. So, um, it just feels like, um, kind of, as you've talked about language is changing and it's not impossible to get it right, but can be really challenging, uh, to get it right. Any recommendations on how we can stay up on some of these changes as professionals, um, who are not part of every community that we're, we're trying to serve? Yeah, none of us are perfect and that's okay. <laughs> um, I have provided some resources on language, but I really think the best response that we can have is to be open to criticism. Mm -hmm. uh, none of us know everything. And so when someone from a community or someone who advocates with a community tells you what language is most appropriate or preferred, um, we just do our best to make the shift. Yeah. And so can you talk a little bit about um, how you think these changes in language um, relate to changes in practice? Yeah, so honestly, I don't think it's as important as we sometimes make it out to be. Um, for some reason, a lot of times when me and other practitioners I know are talking about neurodiversity, the thing people get most stuck on is shifting their language. And language is absolutely important. It can help us reframe our mindset and our practice, but it is the least important part of a shift in practice. And it's just the tip of the iceberg. Um, so one example I have of that is the term special education. 
The term special education is pretty widely disavowed in the disability community. It's actually one of the few terms that um, most segments of the disability community agree that shouldn't be used anymore. Um, In fact, people with Down syndrome have been some of the biggest advocates against this term. And so we can easily make that shift, right? We can change our quote-unquote special education programs to disability support services or student support services. But if all we do is switch the name to disability support services, we have completely failed to understand the point. And the point is we need to move away from programs that are focused on making disabled people more typical, um, so if we're not making actual changes to our programs, then we haven't truly made the shift and we've just done some surface level changes. Gotcha. Can you take a talk a little bit about that? You know, our, um, as, pro- as professionals, sort of our, our interest in, um, in, in making people more typical as, you know, that, um, you know, is that something that you've seen, you know, just as a student, um, just, you know, kind of in, in how we are as occupational therapists currently practicing. Yeah, unfortunately, it is something that I still see quite a bit of. Um, and I think sometimes we have the best possible intent um, with changing some of these things and trying to make people more typical, um, especially with autism, where some of the quote unquote deficits are in social communication. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sometimes that we think we're helping because we're, we think we're helping them make friends or fit in normally. Um, But the autistic community has pretty clearly told us that that's not what they want, right? Um, Mm -hmm. So some of the major things that I see pretty frequently that are really easy changes to practice, um, one would be eye contact. So eye contact is often perceived as incredibly painful or really uncomfortable to autistic people. And many autistic people report that they are literally unable to listen to a conversation if they are required to make eye contact. So why are we trying to require it? Um, It's very similar to this whole body listening idea. Um, You can be listening while looking out the window. You can be listening while moving around, right? So um, I think it's sometimes just something we think we should require and we don't really think about Mm -hmm. why we need that. And I would say we don't. Um, the second part is uh, stimming. Uh, so depending on where you work, stimming, you might have been taught that stimming is something that we need to stop. Um, I was actually talking to a practitioner based out of Minnesota who was told that um, when his autistic kid hand flaps because he's excited, he should drop 40 pom-pom balls on the ground to interrupt the activity and have the kid pick them up um, as a way to stop and interrupt the stim. Uh, I'm not even honestly <laughs> sure where this comes from, like what, what the purpose of that is. Um, there's nothing wrong with stimming. In fact, it's self-regulatory to many autistic people. In fact, we all stim to some extent. I'm holding uh, my stim. There's nothing people, wrong with our, our audience can't see me, but I'm holding my, uh, just a little bit of, um, uh, of tape right now. That is not my typical stim yeah. device, but I, I, uh, am holding it as we speak. Um, so it's. Exactly. There's no reason to stop it. And unless, of course, it is harming the individual, but it very rarely is. So we should move away from that mindset. Yeah. And it's it's sort of interesting to think about, you know, our differences and 
working with children as opposed to adults. And, and sometimes when we're working with, with little ones or even with, um, I tend to work with um, folks with autism who um, also have an intellectual disability, which obviously uh, a lot of people with autism do not have intellectual disability, but it, it becomes a question about, you know, who is the, who is the client, you know? And so um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that in, in terms of um, how we can best manage that as, as a practitioner. Finally, earning CEUs is as easy and stress-free as listening to your favorite podcast. Just head over to occupationaltherapy.com and sign up to start earning the CEUs you need online. You'll get unlimited access to hundreds of courses, including live webinars, on-demand videos, and text courses, and the audio courses you love for just $99 per year. And if you sign up today, you'll get 13 months of unlimited CEU access for the price of 12. This is an exclusive offer for our listeners, so don't wait. Go to occupationaltherapy.com and use promo code PODCAST and get 13 months for just $99. Join thousands of your colleagues who are already earning their CEUs online with occupationaltherapy.com, an AOTA-approved provider of continuing education and an NBCOT professional development provider. And don't forget to use promo code PODCAST at checkout to get your free bonus month. Once again, that's occupationaltherapy.com, promo code PODCAST, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, to get started today. I really, really actually like that framing a lot, who is our client. Um, I think as occupational therapists, um, sometimes we get caught up in helping the family or the school, and those are absolutely people we should be collaborating with. Collaboration with families and parents is essential to our jobs, but the autistic person or the student or the child is our client, is our central advocacy um, person. And I think it's really important to make sure that we're listening to that individual in the community um, rather than allowing parents' views to shift our practice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's, um, you know, I, I'm, I don't know how many IEPs you've got to sit through in, in, your, uh, in your student era, but in a, in a lot of the IEPs or even, you know, other um, team meetings that I've been part of with both children and with adults that um, I think occupational therapy brings a different voice or hopefully brings a a different voice uh, to that IEP meeting or to the team meeting. Um, And it really does, I I think we um, just, and and everyone says that they're client-centered. I I think um, it really does help um, to really try to make sure that that person's voice um, is really central um, to the decisions that are being made. Um, I don't know if you have thoughts about that or even what, what it was like sometimes. As, I don't know if, if you had IEP team. I, I've never asked you if you've had <laughs> IEP meetings or, or what, that, um, what that was like um, or if that's, you don't even have to answer that, um, but it's <laughs> just something to, to think about is how do we, how do we really keep that, that child's voice or that, that adult um, with autism uh, that may not be able to fully articulate um, as poorly as I'm articulating right now, you know, what their, what their needs are. Absolutely. Um, I think especially with you bringing up the fact that some um, autistic kids are not able um, to advocate for a variety of reasons. Um, I think sometimes as OTs, we think we know best. And I think, like you said, we're in a really unique position where we actually can advocate with the student. But sometimes, for some reason, I see us not doing that and rather using our our biases to think 
this is what the kid needs. And so I actually see this a lot with social skills um, where practitioners think it's in the kid's best interest to teach social skills um, because that way they'll have friends and that way um, they'll have all of these things when really the autistic community is saying, no, please don't. Here's how we make friends. Here's how we can do this in a way that affirms our identities. Um, So I think that's incredibly important when you're thinking about how can I advocate for my students and truly be person-centered. I think listening to the community of adult autistic people who many, many of who have co-occurring intellectual disabilities and are non-speaking, are people of color, are trans individuals, um, those voices are incredibly important and they although they are not the individual you're working with, they are the best possible approximation. Gotcha. So listen, listen. And I like that you say advocate with instead of advocate for, um, which is my, I'm, I'm older, so I tend to use that, the, the advocate for language. Um, but obviously to, to have that person's voice, um, you know, whether it's verbal or nonverbal, um, to really be a, a part of, of those decisions that are made. Um, so we often think of autistic communication as sort of a core deficit. Uh, if we think about um, the a deficit mindset, but a deficit of the diagnosis, how do we look at that from a strengths-based perspective? So one of my favorite newer theories uh, is called the double empathy problem. Um, it's by Dr. Damian Milton, and it was a theory that came out in direct um, opposition to Simon Baron Cohen's mind blindness theory. Um, so basically, the theory postulates that rather than autistic people... Okay, well, Simon Baron Cohen's theory says that Autistic people struggle with empathy and partly communication, like the social part of the communication, because they are unable to cognitively understand what the other person is feeling, um, which is an essential part of empathy, according to his theory. Dr. Damian Milton kind of twists this a little bit, and he talks about the fact that Sure, autistic people might have difficulty cognitively understanding what non-autistic people are feeling in that moment, which impacts their ability to communicate, but non-autistic people have just as much trouble understanding what autistic people are feeling and therefore are missing a lot of their communication cues. So this is a very new area of research, but the research has been really promising. Um, There's a really famous study where autistic people and non-autistic people played a game of telephone. um, And the line of autistic people scored very similarly to the line of non-autistic people. Um, The problem arose when the line switched between autistic and non-autistic people. The communication completely fell apart. So when we look at autistic communication from a strengths-based perspective, we need to recognize that autistic people tend to communicate and understand each other fairly well. And the problem arises when the communication between the autistic and the non-autistic person happens. Um, The other point that I want to make with strengths-based communication is that all communication is valid. Um, Communication through behaviors, um, non-speaking or non-verbal communication like body language or echolalia, um, these are all valid forms of communication that we should respect. Um, it's never okay to ignore a type of communication. So as pra- practitioners, if we want to help and move the ownership for change away from the autistic individual uh, and 
and so we take a little bit more responsibility for that. Um, what are some changes that we can make? So when we reframe conversation in our mind, we can start thinking about it from a equal perspective where we're considering the autistic person as an equal partner in conversation and not someone that has inherent deficits. So we're thinking about how can I communicate with this individual um, in the way that benefits us both. So autistic people are constantly making changes to their communication style in order to fit into the world constantly. Um, now, in a relationship with someone, whether it's a friendship or a partnership or a child and a parent or an OT practitioner, um, we constantly make changes to our communication to benefit the other person and they make changes for us. Um, so very similarly, that's all the autistic community is asking. They are not asking for all of the ownership to be on the non-autistic person, just for it to be more of an even split than it currently is. Um, so one really simple thing that non-autistic people can do to help autistic people is think about the hidden messages in your language and communication. So I think non-autistic people sometimes don't even realize that they do this. <laughs> um, but my favorite example of it is the phrase, take out the garbage. So non-autistic people, in an effort to be polite, um, if they want the garbage taken out, might say something like, wow, the garbage is getting full. Now, what they might mean by that is, take out the garbage, please, right? But what the autistic person most likely heard was, wow, the garbage is getting full, <laughs> right? So they're like, oh yeah, it is, you're right. <laughs> now, I've seen this happen where the non-autistic person gets very frustrated. Like, why aren't they listening to me? I told them to take out the garbage. Um, but to the autistic person, you didn't. You didn't tell them to take out the garbage. Um, and so simple changes like this, where we really think about what we actually mean, and then make that small shift to our language can really help. So just to be more direct, would you say? Yes, it's definitely being more direct. Um, but sometimes when I tell people to be more direct, they still miss the hidden message. So, gotcha. Uh, that's sometimes my the, my my wife and I, I. I think I still have when she would probably use that language, that, and I would <laughs> I would say, yeah, it is it is getting full, isn't it? So, uh, but you know, as long as you can stuff a little more in the garbage, right? It's okay. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm conserving garbage bags, right? Yeah. Um, so, so I wonder a little bit about that. Um, so I think in the last several years, um, you know, I think all of us, um, because of the some of the the instances, the some of the racial unrest that we've had in our country, we've all felt some responsibility. And I know I have um, black friends that say, like, it's it's not my responsibility for you to learn about race. You know, it's your responsibility to learn about people that are different than you. And I think um, because of that. Uh, as a white male, I'm trying to take more responsibility and doing more reading and uh, watching more videos. I've trained or, you know, uh, intentionally following certain people on Twitter so that I'm exposed to differences in opinion uh, other than mine or, or different points of view other than mine. Is that sort of what you're you're encouraging us to do, to, to learn about uh, 
folks that come from neurodiverse backgrounds? Yeah, I definitely think it's similar and very interrelated. Um, but I think it's really important to recognize the important distinction that you made there um, between expecting people to educate you on a topic and listening to people that are part of a community. Because we absolutely want to listen to members of a community about their own community, whether it's people of color or autistic people, disabled or queer people. However, it is unfair to expect our friends and family members and patients to educate us. It's not their job. They're just living their life, right? Um, But there are plenty of free and paid resources if you have the ability to pay. And we still need to listen to the community's voices. They're the most important. But yes, I just wanted to make that distinction. And I think, as you mentioned, pay um, in our own, I'm a researcher. And so we are more and more um, writing folks um, with various types of of disabilities into the grants that we're writing as content experts. You know, so for a lot of years, um, researchers have sort of taken advantage of, um, you know, people with disabilities that are, you know, part of focus groups or, or whatnot, but um, are really not able to have much say in, in what the research is or helping us to interpret uh, the research information that we're getting. And I think, um, and really even a lot of the federal grants um, are really, you know, you get points. for So they're helping to encourage us uh, to include the, the, um, the minds and the the, the voices and the thoughts of people with disabilities um, as part of that. So um, the, the federal government's in agreement with you right now in terms of, of how that, that works out. <laughs> I'm yeah, glad. There you go. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how anti-racist practices and pro-queer practices relate to neurodiversity affirming practice? Yeah. So as a white person, obviously, um, I'm not here to um, talk too much about anti-racist practices. But I do think it's really, really essential to mention that both anti-racist practices and pro-queer practices are essential to neurodiversity-affirming practice. Neurodiversity-affirming practice relies on respecting people's identities and people's brains. Therefore, we need to actively work to be anti-racist and pro-queer. Um, A huge part of this is listening to intersectional voices, making sure we listen to Black autistic individuals and trans autistic individuals, and then make the changes we need and they ask us to, to move towards supporting people with multiply marginalized identities. Yeah, and especially um, we have to, As uh, and I'll stop talking about research because everyone loves hearing about research, I'm sure, Um, but it it is often when you, you look at a lot of the the data that or the studies that are done tend to be sort of from a white middle upper middle class background because a lot of times um, those are uh, are throughout society people that tend to have access to a higher level of service so um, any researchers out there I'm sure you're you're hopefully working on that as well to have a, a more diverse um, pool of per- people pool of people that we're working with. Um, I don't know if pool of people that we're working with is the best way to phrase that, but uh, with the, the folks that, that we are, uh, you know, supporting and, and learning from. Um, and I think most uh, occupational therapy practitioners understand that autistic people's interests are important to them and can be used in OT sessions. Uh, but when you're thinking about interests from a neurodiversity affirming lens, do you think there's any changes maybe that we need to make from that? 
Yeah. So there, to me, there's three ways that I've seen occupational therapists use interests in their sessions. Um, and some are definitely better than others. <laughs> so the first option would be using interests as motivation. So I see this most commonly with OTs who have been behaviorists or follow a more behavioral principle. And the basic idea behind it is you identify their interest and you use that interest to get them to do the thing. So if I'm working on handwriting then and the kid's special interest is dinosaurs, great. I will, they can write for five minutes and then I'll give them the dinosaur, right? And they can play with it. Um, this is not at all a neurodiversity affirming approach um, and very much the autistic community um, has really talked about how important their interests are to them. And by leveraging like them like this, it, it can be really hurtful. Um, and I think that when non-autistic practitioners look at interests, they kind of, especially autistic interests, they come from their own perspective and they totally miss how important interest is to us. Um, I mean, engaging with my special interests, info dumping information about it and the intense focus I get from it, it's honestly one of the most profoundly joyful experiences of my life. Um, we absolutely need to stop removing interests. Mm -hmm. So the second option then that I see a lot is leveraging interests. Now, this is much better than the first option. However, it's just not the most effective method. And I think we can do better as practitioners. Um, so this method I see a lot with handwriting specifically, but in general. So with a handwriting example, my kid's interested in dinosaurs still. Um, I'll see a practitioner take a photo of a dinosaur and put it on a handwriting activity. Mm -hmm. Now, I totally get the idea behind this. You're incorporating their interest, right? But you're missing the reason that the autistic person is interested in dinosaurs, right? So for this particular autistic person, it might be that they love info dumping and collecting the information. For other autistic person pe people, they might like the intonation that the dinosaur makes with their vocalizations, and they might love copying that. Um, so the first step towards a truly affirming practice is identifying why that interest is so important and what joy they get out of that interest. And then it's coming up with activities that allow them to engage with that interest in a way that's meaningful to them. So um, if I have a kid who is really enjoying the info dumping portion and the collecting information, I might just suggest that, hey, what if we write down um, your dinosaur facts? Because I know sometimes you get nervous when you're talking to strangers and then that way you can share um, an info dump to that person without being so anxious so you don't forget any of your dinosaur facts. Mm -hmm. So this allows the authentic participation with the interest. And I also happen to work on handwriting for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so that way it's a, it's a win-win. I guess. Exactly. That. Yeah. And it's not, hopefully not manipulative. And I, I think exactly. it is, um, we just have to be careful about that. I think in terms of, um, you know, respecting people's autonomy um, in terms of, you know, where the, the true nature of our profession comes from, which is, you know, that centered, if you're working with kids, it's centered on the, the child and child directed. So um that's uh, an important thing for us to always keep in mind. Um, so in terms of um, leveraging 
so I, like it's pretty clear i think in terms of um you know withholding a preferred uh interest or activity um might be a little bit manipulative can you talk a little bit more though about the difference maybe between that leveraging that you talked about and that authentic engagement um and why that is so important so the core difference really is that leveraging the interest is exactly that manipulation that you were talking about where you really just want them to participate in your task and so you're going to use their interest to get them to participate versus true authentic engagement considers what the child wants, right? So there's a TV show. Um, oh goodness, I'm going to totally forget the name. Um, but it's about an adult autistic um, young man. And he, although the TV show has many problems, it gives an amazing example of using special interests to grow skills. So he's um, very, very interested in penguins. And he has been, he's been pretty hypersensitive to sensory stimuli his whole life. Um, but now as an adult, he really, really wants to go to Antarctica in the TV show. And so he pushes himself out of his comfort zone um, in order to gain skills that he thinks would be valuable to go to Antarctica. Now, mm -hmm. the point with me sharing that story is that autistic people's special interests, because they're so intense and passionate, can just like everyone else's motivations can help us to gain skills and center our motivations rather than centering the therapist motivations of handwriting. Um, why is handwriting important to the kid? And that's a great question. <laughs> I guess hopefully, hopefully the, the child can answer that and you don't have to be the ones answering that for them. Uh, but that's a that's just kind of an, an important thing, I think, for us to keep in mind because um, you're right. I, I think a lot of, of occupational therapy, at its root, really is helping uh, people sometimes step outside of what they they want to do uh, or that they feel that they can do. And how do we? Um, it's not that we're motivating them to do something or not to do something, but it's really. Um, you know, if they want to make the next step, it's up to them in the end to make that next step or not. We're there to provide the support they need to get there. But in the end, it really is, it's their decision um, to make that. Yeah. And it relies more on that intrinsic interest. And I think for autistic people, um, we sometimes rely on extrinsic rewards like food or whatever it is in that moment. And it's so unnecessary because autistic people have such intense interests and intrinsic motivation for things. Right. And I, in my work, um, I help uh, folks typically with intellectual and developmental disabilities. So somewhere on the neurodiversity spectrum there, um, find employment. And we had a, a person that was really kind of uh, bent on becoming president of the United States. And so we ended up trying to set up an, an internship um, related to um, uh, public policy. And uh, the person, you know, it's sort of, we didn't actually do a task analysis of the, the presidency of the United States, although that'd be an interesting task analysis to do. But um, we, we, we looked at, the, at this public policy work um, that is a part of, if you're interested in being a politician, for most of them, um, they're doing some type of public policy, at least in, initially. And and he really looked at sort of the requirements and even spent a couple of days doing that internship. And 
and just decided that he really didn't like it. And, um, you know, it's sort of like all the, <laughs> all the, the, you know, talking yourself, you know, up way and up one way and down the other. Um, it's really until he kind of looked at it and took an honest stance at it and said, no, this isn't something that I, I really, why would anyone want to do this? So, um, he found, uh, kind of a, a the next step of what, um, what do you want to do? He actually now is doing some public policy work, but um, I think has given up on being president of the United States, which I don't know why anyone would want to be president of the United States these days, but that's a whole nother story. But that's such a good example because typically developing people are allowed to do that all the time. They go into college mm -hmm. and they think they want to be one thing and then they switch halfway through or whatever. Um, and so, but a lot of times for adults with developmental disabilities, we tell them, oh, no, like you're not able to do that thing. You're not able to do this. Um, when he got the opportunity to try and he decided, oh, this isn't for me. And if he had decided it was, then he would have gained some great skills along the way, just like a typically developing person would have. Right. So we show um, videos a lot. And I know in my in my head, I think of, you know, that autistic people think in pictures. Um, I don't, what do you think? I don't, I don't know. You just cringed I, when I when I said that. Um, but when so are the videos, do pictures tend to help folks understand um, you know, what a, a job might entail, what something might require, or am I uh, way off on that? Yeah, I think they absolutely can. I'm all for multimodal learning. That's great. Mm -hmm. um, I think the reason I cringed is because I think that phrase comes from Dr. Temple Grandin, and um, there's been some controversy with her over, like, not necessarily respecting autistic adults with intellectual disabilities and their contribution um, to the neurodiversity movement and how important that they are as well. Um, but my other thing with that is I think sometimes pictures can be overused or overly symbolic with the autistic community and they lose their helpfulness. So pictures can absolutely be important um, and so can videos. Uh, I think the best option is of course to get to try it and do it yourself, but sometimes that's not an option. Um, so I think if you're going to use pictures and videos, the more accurate they are, the better, um, less symbolic and more, here's an actual picture of your mom or the job or whatever. Gotcha. So, and part of that, why is, is actually being in that environment better is um, I think we as occupational therapists see ourselves as sort of as experts in sensory and, and certainly environment um, and all the sensory sensation uh, that goes on as part of environment um, is really important in terms of how autistic people um, succeed or uh, prefer or don't prefer certain environments. Um, so what does sensory look like from a neurodiversity affirming perspective, would you say? So when we think of sensory from a strengths-based and neurodiversity affirming perspective, um, I don't know about you, but I definitely think of Dr. Winnie Dunn, right? She's the queen of strengths-based sensory. Um, and mm. although she's definitely not the only strengths-based sensory approach, she is by far the most well-known. Um, so in this approach and many other strengths-based sensory approaches, Sensory processing is something completely neutral, not something to be fixed. Mm -hmm. And as occupational therapists, we can absolutely work to change the environment or we can provide coping mechanisms for the individual, but we do not work to change people's sensory systems. I think uh, it's, it's interesting because that 
uh, I, I wouldn't say that that's controversial, but I know that um, I've heard <laughs> occupational therapists say that we're we're changing sensory systems, and um, I've never been um, convinced that that is what we're doing. I think that we help people build tolerance, and you know, um, in some ways, it's you know providing some form of scaffolding support so that people can maybe tolerate uh, senses in a uh, in a more difficult way. I know, um, in a when I was younger, um, I used to do some work at a, a school for the blind and worked with kids that um, some had autism, some did not have autism, um, that were really, uh, you know, incredibly tactically defensive. Um, but for them, it was really important uh, to be able to, it's important for everybody, but especially for folks that were blind, to be able to um, start to tolerate things that um, they may not find to be as tolerable. And so it was just really important. Um, but I, I almost thought, uh, that really the work that I was doing was was really toleration more so than than change. And obviously, working with kids and neuroplasticity and with adults and neuroplasticity, there's going to be some changes. But it really is, I think, helping people develop their their likes and their dislikes. And and when they have dislikes, how do they um, how do they you know say those to other people so that um, it's you know, they're not burning relationships or, or breaking relationships on some of those. Um, I don't know if that's been your perspective or or um, how else you might respond to how how we can be uh, neurodiversity affirming in terms of how we, we, we work with sensation. Yeah, I think my view is very similar. Um, I wouldn't necessarily, or I've never personally called it tolerance, but I think it's um, very similar to what you're saying. Uh, specifically... OT practice, I think, is really, really great. Like occupational therapy, sensory practice, in the sense that when done correctly, it often involves, like, I mean, one of the major goals of our sensory practice is to not cause the kid any distress, right? And to be there to co-regulate and all of these amazing things that I absolutely love. I just disagree with what's actually happening in the outcome, right? So the actual practice itself tends to be very neurodiversity affirming. It's um, obviously not always if done incorrectly, but when done correctly, it's incredible. It allows children to have a safe space to explore with a person they can trust, um, which allows them to be more willing to engage in activities that might be stressful or painful. Uh, my The thing I disagree with is I don't think that occupational therapies are changing um, autistic people's sensory systems, I think they're helping them indirectly develop coping mechanisms, both sensory and emotional. Gotcha. So in terms of, um, like, what is, what's occupational therapy's sort of reputation, would you say, among autistic people, autistic adults? Yeah, unfortunately, Unfortunately, it really varies. Um, mm -hmm. So I know quite a few autistic people who do have um, really good like opinions of occupational therapy. Um, but then as soon as I tell them that we are, quote unquote, working to desensitize their sensory systems, it immediately falls apart. Uh, I don't know a single autistic person that believes that occupational therapy can do that. Um, however, 
And of course, there are lots of autistic people who have had really bad experiences with occupational therapy. Um, but unlike other therapies or experience that is that autistic people have, I don't think it's a core problem with the profession. I think occupational therapy as a whole um, can be here. And I think we're the closest profession to standing with autistic people and we can be there to support them in whatever they need and choose to do. Um, we just need to stand with them rather than working from a helping I can fix you perspective. So if you think about, you know, use the word co-regulation and regulation. Um, so how do we do that actively? So how do we help people learn some of these strategies uh, so that hopefully they're seeing us standing with them and not on them, I guess, or, you know, whatever it would be in terms of a, a negative, a negative, because obviously there are other professions without getting too uh, down that um, rabbit hole, uh, so to speak, um, that, autistic adults really um, don't have a lot of positive things to say about. So, so how do we, how do we stay within the, on the positive uh, frame of, of people with, with, you know, people with autism or autistic adults? So depending on what your practice looks like right now with sensory specifically, um, it might not actually require that much change to actively teach Mm -hmm. these strategies. Uh, If you're participating in a sensory approach that is child-led and involves creating little to no child distress, like purposely, um, which many, many practitioners are already doing, then all we really need to do is reframe our mindset to think that we are not changing these kids' sensory systems. We're teaching them coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. But then we also might consider adding in some more coping and regulation strategies, including more co-regulation, especially for our younger kids who might, I mean, we don't expect a typical developing three-year-old to regulate by themselves, and we certainly shouldn't expect an autistic one to do so. Um, So a lot of the active regulation strategies that we use are things that occupational therapists are already experts in. So when we think about sensory and movement-based regulation strategies. Those are the first go-to strategy, especially for younger kids who are non-speaking or have co-occurring intellectual disabilities. Uh, Dr. Amy Laurent and Dr. Jacqueline Feed do an amazing job of breaking this down in a autism-friendly way. Um, They are a perfect example of collaborating with autistic adults. Um, Autistic adults have been consulted at every stage of their process. So could you talk a little bit about um, neurodiversity affirming practices with uh, autistic adults that might have higher support needs? So maybe they have, um, specifically the folks that I work with that have um, oftentimes co-occurring intellectual uh, disabilities. Um, So what does that look like with somebody that maybe needs a little higher level of support? Yeah, for some reason... um... One of the biggest complaints I get or like comments I get when talking about neurodiversity affirming practice is, sure, of course, that's appropriate for quote unquote high functioning people, but that would never work for the kids I work with. That would never work for the kids with higher support needs, right? Um, Unfortunately, this is kind of the opposite of what I would like people to understand. Neurodiversity affirming care is the most important for individuals who are non-speaking or have co-occurring intellectual disabilities um, because it's a protective factor and it can help kids keep kids safe and developing Mm -hmm. in a regulated way. 
Uh, the principles stay the same, no matter who you're working with. We still recognize all communication is valid. We still listen to autistic voices and we respect bodily autonomy. Um, and we make environmental modifications. But some of the methods do change. We're going to use more like somatic, motor, and sensory regulation strategies over some like cognitive strategies. Um, but this approach is absolutely essential for those who are non-speaking or have co-occurring intellectual disabilities. And there are lots and lots of available tools to implement this in our practice. Yeah, I, I just think about um, uh, a lot of the sheltered workshops that I used to support people um, that were working in. And so you had, you know, someone that uh, was autistic uh, and had differences of of experiencing sensation than I did. And I would go into this environment and within five minutes, you know, I just was on edge. And um, so it was, it was no wonder why, um, you know, people in that environment uh, may have uh, difficulty being successful there because I certainly had difficulty um, being successful there. Um, so I think that's just an important part of, of how we can help people design environments that are really going to be beneficial uh, for everybody. Um, you talked a little bit about respecting bodily autonomy. Um, so as OT practitioners, um, we oftentimes are doing handling with kids. Um, is that something we need to be really careful about or not do with uh, kids with autism? Ideally, no. All people deserve bodily autonomy, and we sh really, as practitioners, should be trying to move away from um, handling kids unless it's an immediate safety issue. Obviously, please grab kids. Don't let them run in front of cars. Um, but when it comes to non-emergent situations, I think we're a bit too quick to um, move kids uh, without their assent, necessarily. Um, I think this is even more important for autistic individuals who are at higher risk for sexual assault and physical assault. But even just on a smaller and less scary scale, autistic people often very strongly dislike physical touch. And unless it's for safety, there's no real reason that we should be violating this, especially in an OT session where we don't have as many constraints as a parent might have. Um, a lot of times we have better time constraints and we're allowed to be more flexible. Um, the second part of respecting bodily autonomy is hand over hand. Uh, we pretty frequently use hand over hand as OT practitioners, and this is something that the autistic community is very, very vocal about. Um, I think as OT practitioners, we use it in a way that we assume like we use it in what we consider a very positive way. We often use it to scaffold and um, teach skills. However, autistic people really have strongly disliked the removal of bodily autonomy that this can cause. So instead, I would challenge you to use hand under hand. So this is such a small change, but it allows the child to pull their hand away if they are uncomfortable. So by placing their hand on top of your hand to scaffold. Um, it allows them to remove themselves from the situation, and we need to respect that when, we, when they do. So there are lots of situations where we might need, or the client or kid might benefit from touch, right? I mean, a lot of our clients benefit from deep pressure. Um, maybe they have dyspraxia and they need a helping hand. Um, 
the thing is, we just need to listen very, very closely to their body signals. And when they pull away or move away, we need to respect it. Yeah, and especially folks that that aren't able to tell us uh, is just to exactly you know just to you know we listen with our ears and with our eyes and with you know just sensing you know when people are uncomfortable to respect that and to to help them back off or or to back off ourselves from that um, and and just getting ready from this or for this talk um, I was kind of the the method that you seem to be encouraging um, I would say is looking at it as an occupational therapy practitioner as a coach. And and I don't know if that language works for you or you think would work um, for autistic individuals or if that's confusing in our role. I think it definitely depends on the setting. Um, I certainly wouldn't recommend it if you're a hand therapist who's uh, working in an outpatient clinic. Yeah. But um, sure. I do most of my work in a community-based setting or an outpatient pediatric setting um, where I think it's very, very appropriate to use the term coach. Um, especially when you're working with adults with developmental disabilities, uh, who Mm -hmm. I think it's one simpler term that they may have heard before. A lot of them have had occupational therapy, but they might think of occupational therapy as like the sensory people when I'm here to help partner with them on Mm -hmm. cooking. Right. So I think it can sometimes be confusing. Um, I mean, it's certainly confusing for the general population. So, um, I think it really just depends on your view as a OT practitioner and an individual. I think it's completely appropriate to use if you feel comfortable. If not, I think that's fair too. Yeah, but I I, I like it a lot, especially with adults, um, because they're the ones that are in control. I'm on giving su- suggestions. I like the idea of a service menu, which is kind of you know uh, you know it's like you're going into the occupational therapy restaurant. You know, here's the here's the five different proteins, the you know four different vegetables and uh, dessert. Uh, I'm sure I missed a, maybe a, uh, some type of a carbohydrate with that as well. Um, and then, you know, for that person who knows what their tastes are, who knows what their preferences are, um, you know, from a sensory standpoint or, or whatever else we're working with, you know, helps them to really give them control of, of what is their, what's their priority, which I think is, is really an important thing for them to do. Absolutely. I think it's really something that we're actually moving towards in many areas of occupational therapy is more of this coaching model, um, especially with adults, but actually even younger children too. I mean, I've pretty frequently work with uh, seven and 10 year olds who are the most creative people ever and letting them decide things in the session ends up for a much better session for the both of us. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what are some of your favorite resources that you can um, let us know uh, to help us be more neurodiversity affirming in occupational therapy practice. So if you're a practitioner, you are coming into neurodiversity affirming practice at the right time. There are so many amazing practitioners out there. There are so many autistic occupational therapists out there who are making a real difference. I have included a lot of them on a resource list, um, but some of my absolute favorites, I mentioned um Dr. Jacqueline Feed and Dr. Amy Laurent, they have an autism level up program that I would very strongly recommend. It's absolutely fantastic, especially for emotional and sensory regulation. Um, The other program uh, is um, Learn, Play, Thrive. They're a very good beginner course on how to um, change your mindset to a more neurodiversity affirming one. And they have free options out there. And, and we like free. And so as part of this, um, there will be some some resources uh, that you can go to uh, at occupationaltherapy.com that 
um, Catherine has recommended for us. So you'll you'll be able to do that. So um, and then just uh, are you going to be? I'm I'm hoping with these occupational. I guess I was going to say occupational therapists with autism with these autistic occupational therapists that you're. Um, interviewing and working with as part of your your capstone? Are you hoping to, to publish that? How are you going to share that information with the profession? I am definitely hoping to publish it. Um, at the very least, hopefully, I can apply to AOTA for a poster presentation or something like it. Um, not this conference, but uh, the next one. Um, gotcha. But I will continue to work on neurodiversity affirming practice regardless, because it is definitely... Um, incredibly important and I think we should all be trying to make that shift well Catherine thank you so much uh, when I heard you on that panel um, I just again think you're such an important voice for our profession to hear from and hopefully to, to lead at some point um, and so just thanks for your time today and I really enjoyed our conversation yeah thank you so much for having me